this morning we're continuing on in this series called Waypoints. And this series is a, a way of walking through the book of John by simply looking at the miracles that John records in his gospel or in his biography of the life of Jesus. And we're doing this for a couple of reasons. Um, the first one is really simple, that when you get towards the end of John, John chapter 21, there's this point where John talks about the miracles that he's recorded and he says... I've written about these miracles, I've told you about these things, I've revealed this to you so that you would see Jesus for who he is, that you would believe in him, and that you would, by believing in him, you would have life. And so, so the first reason we're doing this is because when John wrote his gospel, he actually intended that we would take note of these miracles and understood that, that these would lead us to a place of actually seeing something about Jesus that would compel us, that would draw us in, it would cause us to believe in him, and, and by believing in him, there's a life that's on the other side of that that's unique and different. So that's the first reason we're doing this. The second reason that we're doing this, and, and I've said this each week so far in one form or another, is that we need to see Jesus more clearly, and we need to see the way of Jesus more plainly. And, that, and that's incredibly important for us. And let me just explain two reasons why. Um, if you're a person, if you've come this morning and you're considering Christianity, um, maybe, maybe you've just come today and you're exploring and you're just thinking, I'm really curious about this Jesus and what this means. I think that this series and even this message we're looking at today, I think it clarifies some of what some of your greatest concerns may be about what is this way of Jesus really all about? Like, who is Jesus? I think there's something about seeing Jesus in this capacity, seeing him move in this way that answers the questions and maybe resolves some of the concerns for those of you that have questions about Jesus that I think are really critical. I think it's really important. And in fact, one of the things that, that I find interesting in this is that sometimes people on the outside see Jesus very differently than people on the inside of church. And interestingly enough, sometimes they see Jesus more clearly than those of us on the inside. Which is another reason why we need to do this. Because I also believe that with sort of churchianity in America today, it's easy for us to lose sight of who Jesus really is. And, and so Jesus is presenting clarity to us so that even those on the inside, we can have accomplished in our hearts what he was trying to accomplish in the hearts of his followers then. That there would be new springs of excitement and new springs of enthusiasm for what he's doing in the world and who he is and what he's actually inviting us into. And so there's a clarity that he's offering those of us on the inside. And there's, a, there's questions that he's answering for those that are asking questions and sort of walking towards this and exploring Jesus. So all of this drives us to this. And so these questions, this clarifying, all of this is happening. And primarily happening through three things that we see over and over again. Um, every time Jesus performs a miracle or one of these waypoints leading us to this conclusion, we see who Jesus is not. We see very clearly the things that are not true about Jesus. He does things to delineate and say, you may have thought this, but now I'm going to show you this. Then we show, he shows us who he really is. What is Jesus really all about? And then in the process of this, I believe he reveals certain things to us about how what he's doing involves us, the implications for us. There's something tangible that it speaks to in our own lives. And so today we're going to be looking at the third miracle or the third waypoint. And it is important because it, it really presents a head-on confrontation with a pervasive attitude that I believe many people who identify with Jesus carry with them. Jesus is going to do something today, and he's going to speak to something, and he's going to address something that I think confronts an attitude that many people who are following Jesus are known for that he doesn't want us to be known for. And before I dive into this, let me just give you a disclaimer. Um, in fact, why don't you open your Bibles, if you brought them with you this morning, John chapter 5. Um, John is in the New Testament, the fourth gospel, the fourth book of the New Testament. So if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you can open to that. Uh, chapter 5. 
Um, and let me just say that as we're diving into this chapter, there is so much going on, and there's so many aspects or dimensions to what's happening. In John chapter 5, um, I literally could camp out in this chapter and probably teach on it for a month, um, maybe even a year. Maybe I do a whole series on it. I don't know. You don't want me to do that. Um, trust me. Um, Because I'll geek out on things and you don't want to go there with me. Um, But I do want to focus on some very specific things that I think are critical for us to see at this point in time. So John chapter 5, let me remind you that in our first week of this series, we saw the first miracle, the first waypoint at the wedding in Cana. That's where Jesus turned the water into wine, but he wasn't just turning water into wine. He was firing a shot across the bow of religiosity. He was tipping his hat and he's saying, if you think I'm here to be religious, if you think I'm here to establish another religion you got another thing coming. And he sort of tips his hat to that. Then last week we looked at the second waypoint, the second miracle, which is the healing of the nobleman's son. This miracle, Jesus um, revealed and confronted something in all of us, and that's that many of us, and even then, would come to Jesus for the wrong reasons. That we will approach Jesus because we want him to just simply answer a request that we have, and that somehow in the middle of that, Jesus is gracious enough not just to meet us where we are, but he also shows us who he really is and gives us an opportunity to believe. That's what we saw last week. And now this week, there's a a fundamental shift that takes place. We begin to see in this third miracle that Jesus um, starts to show us some things that are are truly impactful and powerful for us moving forward, even for us as a church, to understand who it is he's calling us to be. There is this opportunity for us to experience something different as we see this. So, John chapter 5, verse 1, I'm going to read these verses, and we're just going to walk through this, and I'm going to explain some things, and then we'll understand how it involves us as we get towards the end of this. So John chapter 5, verse 1, this is what it says. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. And I'm just going to pause here, because this is really important for us to catch. Um, it's, It's good for you to know, historically speaking, that Jerusalem is the capital of Judaism, the Hebrew religion. Um, Jerusalem is the centerpiece of this. And um, this is where the temple is for the, for the Jews. And it's where during various religious festivals or feasts that would be held, the Hebrews would pilgrimage to. They would come to the city of Jerusalem several times a year for these festivals of faith, if you will. And this place is sort of the heartbeat of Judaism. This is where all the action is. This is where the temple is. This is where the pre- everything is happening in, in Jerusalem. And so verse 1 says that Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. So obviously, Jesus, being Jewish himself, is going to go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem like many other people around him. Not only that, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. And because he's a Jewish rabbi, it makes even more sense for him to be there and going to this place. But what's interesting is that John is pointing this out not simply to state the obvious that Jesus is going here because he's Jewish and he's a rabbi. John is pointing this out because there's a progression that's taking place as these miracles are moving forward. Um, If you go back to the first miracle, if you remember this, it was done, the wedding at Cana, it was done primarily in private. It was at a wedding, it was with a group of people who were friends, they were connected to each other, there was a family. So there was sort of this secrecy to it, and Jesus sort of tips his hat, and there's this early miracle. The second miracle that we saw last week in the same city, in the city of Cana, and it extended to Capernaum, was a miracle that Jesus spoke, it was a little broader, there's this individual who's influenced and shaped, and a whole household has changed And certainly you can assume that from the wedding at Cana to now this second miracle, the fame or the buzz around Jesus is starting to swell. More and more people are starting to acknowledge him for who he is. The word is sort of getting out. But here's the catch. Cana, the place where Jesus is at his second miracle, is 66 miles from Jerusalem, which in that day and age, if you were walking, was a fairly significant distance, right? Nobody today walks 66 miles 
unless you are forced to for some reason, right? Um, you don't choose that sort of thing, right? So, so now Jesus goes to Jerusalem, and he's going during a festival, which means all sorts of faithful followers of Judaism have gathered in the city. And so the streets are crowded. The population is swelling. There's people selling food. There's noise. There's music. There's smells. You, you can just imagine any sort of festival in our day, that's what's, what's happening in the city of Jerusalem during this particular thing. And so all of these people have come. All of these faithful Jewish individuals are in the city. There's this buzz about things. And this is when Jesus shows up. And you can see the progression from a wedding to this more public thing, and now Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem, and he's about to do something that will draw everybody's attention. These waypoints are leading us somewhere, and there is this increasing public exposure, and you're about to see why. Now, before, um, before we, we dive into the second verse, let me explain what I mean with Jesus leading us somewhere. Um, this past summer, I, ha I had a, an amazing privilege of climbing Mount Kilimanjaro with World Vision. And I know some of you are looking at me and you're like, no, you didn't. <clears throat> but I did. I did. I did. I, I really did. And, uh, and it was an amazing experience. But here's what's interesting. When you're going towards Kilimanjaro, um, there's, there's this fascinating, it's, I mean, it's a massive geographic uh, phenomenon. In fact, let me let's just show you here. Kind of give you a sense of how large it is. You know how Mount Hood, on a clear day, it sort of rises up and stands over our city? Like, quadruple that. And that's Kilimanjaro, rising out of the plains of Afar. In fact, um, topographically speaking, Kilimanjaro is the fourth largest, like, massive mountain in the world. Um, Mount Rainier is 21st, and um, Mount Hood doesn't even, like, hit the, the 125. That's how big Kilimanjaro is. And so um, you can imagine I'm going there, I'm looking at it, and I remember thinking, wow, it looks so flat on the top, you could land a plane on it. And while I was hiking it, I was like, I really hope they can land a plane on this. <laughs> That'd be really great if they could. But, but here's what's fascinating about Kilimanjaro. When you break that edge and you get up on top of that plateau, what you discover is that deep inside of that plateau, there are actually two peaks on the mountain of Kilimanjaro. There is a, a peak that is called Mwenzi, and there's a peak that's called Kibo. And those two peaks are in the middle of this giant plain with a saddle in between them. And, and Mount Kibo is the highest of those peaks. And when somebody says they climbed to the top of Kilimanjaro, they went to the top of that peak, the Kibo peak, on top of this massive, giant monstrosity of a mountain. And, and I share this with you because it's, it's a really an illustration of what Jesus is doing through these miracles, that he's drawing us in and he's taking us up the mountain. And, and so for a lot of us, we sort of look back and we look at Jesus from a distance and we see him and we, we, we sort of think, well, that's Jesus. I kind of have an understanding of who he is. Kind of got an idea of what it's all about. And it's like this massive mountain. But what Jesus is doing is he's drawing us up close and he's saying, no, 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 there's actually two peaks there's actually two ways to live. There's actually two ways to understand how you relate to God. There is one way, and then there is this way that I'm trying to reveal to you. And so what Jesus is pointing us to and drawing us toward is an understanding of this difference. He's pointing out the distinction between these two ways of living by drawing us closer to see these things. That brings us to verse 2. He goes to Jerusalem, and it says in verse 2, Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. 
So let me just explain the geography of Jerusalem. This is the northern part of the city of Jerusalem. And it's inside of an area that's referred to as the third wall. Uh, It's about a 10-minute walk from where this pool is to the temple in Jerusalem. And, And this is a very interesting area because when it was constructed originally, it's constructed later in the timeline of, of Jewish history, of Jerusalem history, and when it was constructed, it was constructed as a buffer neighborhood to protect the rest of the city. In fact, the first inhabitants, they, they were given incentives to live there because the nature of the geography was this. If there were invaders or if there was an attack on the city of Jerusalem, that neighborhood would serve as a buffer from the more affluent or more holy parts of the city. So basically, this neighborhood was built to, to just protect the city and the people that were living there in case of an attack were the first people who would die. They were the first people whose lives would be cost. And so, essentially, this is a neighborhood that historically is associated with a certain sense of being expendable. It's an expendable neighborhood. It's got expendable people that are living in it. That's the history of the neighborhood. There are other neighborhoods that are very nice and very wealthy. There's a holy part of the city. But then there's this neighborhood. And in this neighborhood, there's a pool. And the pool is called Bethesda. Let's just keep reading this. Verse 3, it says, Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. So now I just want to take you a little deeper into this. So not only is this an expendable neighborhood, but the people who are described by this pool, the people who are blind, the lame, the paralyzed, in this culture, during this time, They were outcasts. They were outcasts because there was this understanding or this belief that if you were in one of those conditions, then somebody in your family did something. You did something. Your parents did something. You deserve this because the gods are angry at you. And so that's the way people were thought of this. In fact, there were actually rules and regulations that said somebody who was clean, who didn't have one of these ailments, they couldn't even come near, couldn't touch you. They needed to be careful. There were procedures around how you could operate around a person who was unclean. And so we have this expendable neighborhood with a pool that surrounded these colonnades, these porches with people who were considered expendable, if you will. The reason that they're there, by the way, is there was this legend. It was a legend that if the waters stirred, they would just sort of suddenly stir and and, and move, and the, the idea was that it was because an angel had entered into the water, and so people believed if you could get into the water um, while the angel was stirring it, that you would be healed. That was this legend. The reason I use the, the phrase legend is because verse 3 says there was a great number of disabled people laying around the pool, which apparently it wasn't working, right? Like, they're all laying around the pool, and this legend, it's not fulfilling itself. And this individual that we're looking at here is there 38 years. And so essentially what you have is a group of people who are hopelessly hoping. Like we're laying here kind of hoping that something's going to happen, but really we know there isn't going to be anything that ever happens. Nothing is going to change. So verse 6 says, When Jesus saw him, speaking of the man who'd been there 38 years, when it saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, like basically Jesus looks and says, I think this guy's the worst case among them all. That lifespan in that culture was phenomenal. He asked him, Do you want to get well? So, so Jesus singles this guy out and, and, and asks him, do you want to get well? And I, I tell you, when I, when I read this, and, and I, oftentimes when I'm first reading these verses, sometimes I hear sarcasm in Jesus' voice. I know it's probably not healthy to do that. But I think you just walked up to a guy who's been by the side of a pool for 38 years who can't walk, and you said, do you want to get well? What kind of question is that? 
It's like, Jesus, you're, you're stating the obvious. Or maybe it just makes you disconnect with them a little bit. Like, why would you say this? In fact, um, this week, I found myself in downtown Portland several times. And uh, in, in different times, I was walking. And in a couple of different occasions, I had this verse, this chapter rolling through my mind. And there were a couple moments where I ran into groups of, of homeless guys hanging out. And for whatever reason, I just was imagining this. And I thought, what if I walked up? to a group of homeless guys hanging out on the street, and what if I singled one of them out, the one that maybe looked the most destitute, and what if I said, hey, would you like a new home? How would he respond? Probably with something like, yeah, right, man. What do I have to do? What kind of hoops, hoops do I have to jump through? There's no way, man. I'm hopeless, right? That's the kind of response you would get. You would get sarcasm back. You would get hopelessness back, right? That's exactly what happens with Jesus. Jesus sees the man and he offers this, do do you want to get well? And there's this sort of jaded response. In verse 7, he says, sir, I have no one to help me into the pool. Like, I've been lying here for 38 years, man. I've got no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, somebody else goes down ahead of me. Translation, basically, of course I want to get well. I can't. It's impossible. I'm hopeless. And right then, Jesus says something that will change the trajectory of this man's life forever. Verse 8, it says, Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once, in a a moment, in an instant, the man was cured, and he picked up his mat, and he began walking. So a man who had been for 38 years laying by this pool is healed, and he picks up his mat, and he starts walking. This happened today. Somebody's calling the Oregonian, and they're saying, we need to do an article on this, right? Somebody needs to tell this story. This needs to be on the news. You're never going to believe this, right? Except there's a problem. Keep reading in verse 9. Verse 9 continues. It says, the day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said, pick up your mat and walk. (laughs) This is unbelievable, right? So this guy gets healed, and these Jewish leaders, they see him. He's probably not just walking. He's strutting, right? He's got his yoga mat under his arm. He's got like the John Travolta walk. He's like, check it out. I'm walking, right? I've got this thing. I'm feeling great, right? And they look at him, and they go, what's that under your arm? What's my mat? Well, you know it's illegal to carry your mat on Sabbath, right? Do you know that I just got healed after 38 years? Like, you people have seen me down by that pool for 38 years, and you've never done a thing. And there's a guy that wanders up and tells me to walk and tells me to carry my mat. Guess who I'm listening to, right? I'm going to listen to him. I'm not going to listen to you. I I think if he's got enough authority to allow me to walk after 38 years, he's got enough authority to give me permission to carry my mat on a Sabbath, Right? And these Jewish leaders, they get so excited, they're like, you're right, buddy. No. (laughs) Like, they completely ignore the healing. They they see him with the mat, they hear about the healing, and their next question, verse 12, they ask him, who told you to pick up your mat? Who is this? Who did this, right? Who's this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? Now, the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. So there's a crowd. Remember, this is a festival. This is all happening with people around. And right here, we get a clue to what Jesus is really doing. What's he doing with this miracle? What's he up to in this? And I love this. Let me just back up for just a moment. The man gets healed on the Sabbath. 
Did Jesus know it was the Sabbath? He absolutely knew it was the Sabbath, right? So in a crowd, lots of people, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. Did Jesus know that it was illegal to carry your mat on the Sabbath? Absolutely, Jesus knew it was illegal to carry your mat on the Sabbath. So Jesus intentionally heals this man on the Sabbath and then looks at him and says, like, I mean, the guy is just a pawn at this point, right? He looks at him and says, hey, now that you've been healed, take up your mat and walk. And then Jesus slips into the crowd. Like, let's just watch what happens. It's like lighting a firecracker and throwing it into a group of people, right? He's like, let me just see what happens. You guys want to watch what goes on with this? This is going to be really fun, right? And you, you can see Jesus set this whole thing up. He knows he's going to get caught. He knows the religious people are out and about. And when this man gets caught, it is going to turn this situation into an incendiary moment. And somebody's going to have to do something or see something. And so this tension is building. And then we read this. Verse 14, it says later. So Jesus, later on, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see you are well again. Man, you're looking good, buddy. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. I'll explain that in just a moment. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So Jesus comes and finds him. Says, hey, you look good. <laughs> Legs working okay. It's like a follow-up visit by the doctor. Everything going okay? Things are, things are good? The knees are working, hips are working, everything's good? Everything good? And, th and then Jesus says this very cryptic thing that I need to explain to you because this could present all sorts of misunderstanding. Um, in, in fact, he says, you look well, and he says, sin no more lest something else bad happen to you. Um, later on in John chapter 9, we're going to get there in the series, Jesus is very clear to say that the physical ailments a person receives or experiences has nothing to do with what their family members did. Jesus says it very plainly. We always need to interpret Jesus with his own words. So if Jesus says something one place and you go, what does that mean? It seems like that contradicts this. Well, the other thing helps us understand this. So when Jesus says go and sin no more, he's not saying, hey, you better go be perfect or I'm going to strike you dead. That's not what he's doing. When Jesus says go and sin no more, which is actually a phrase he uses fairly frequently, he's actually speaking to this larger perspective or the way he would be moving through his life, the understanding, the system that he would be following. Essentially what Jesus is saying is I'm inviting you into this new way of living don't continue in this old way because this old way of religiosity and brokenness this way will only lead you to something worse than what you've experienced before. So Jesus is just simply saying, there's another way to do this. And he, and he says this to this person. And then this guy goes and tells the Jewish leaders, hey, I figured out who it was. It was that guy, Jesus. Now, all of this leads to verse 16. Verse 16 says, so... Because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Because Jesus was healing people and doing it on the Sabbath, on the wrong day, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Jesus, you can heal anybody you want, but you better stop doing it on the Sabbath. <laughs> Do you see the irony in this? 
not only does this cause sort of a controversy here, but also this begins a discourse that extends on beyond this. The next several verses, I encourage you to read it this week, there's a dialogue. Now there's almost a trial that happens over the next couple of chapters where Jesus begins this debate. And this moment is sort of when it all begins. Jesus brings this whole conversation to a head. He intentionally brings us to this point, and he goes from sort of in private, a little bit of public, to now the beginning of the persecution. So there is this escalation that we sense Jesus is leading us someplace with the performing of these miracles. This is pointing us somewhere. Now, I, I want to describe, describe a particular group of individuals, and I think this is incredibly relevant for us, um, because among the, the people of the Jews, there was a group that had risen up. They had no official political power. Um, they actually, in their very early days, they were very typical people. Um, but they emerge out of a particular season, and I just want to explain this historically to you so you understand some context of this. Um, Alexander the Great had conquered the region where Jerusalem, um, this, this particular region where we're talking about here, the land of the Hebrews. And there was a particular general who um, wickedly understood how to conquer people, and he knew that it wasn't just physical defeat, but that you also had to defeat their culture. And so this particular general would um, essentially cause certain things to be illegal, cultural customs, religious practices, rites and rituals, those kinds of things. They were outlawed by the general because this guy knew, eventually, I'm just going to wear you down. You won't live in your culture anymore, and you'll just assimilate into us. You'll no longer have your unique identity. And so that was his idea. And so this is how the people were living, and there is a revolt against that government, against that group, and it's led by a group of people called the Maccabeans. These Maccabeans rise up. They're sort of a rebellious group of individuals. And in the process, they reinstate a priestly line. They say, you know what? We're going to start a new priestly line, sort of like the old one that exists. And there are new priests, there are new kings, there are new people, and we want to reestablish this. But it was outside of the lineage of the past. And so they begin doing this, but there are some Jews who look at the Maccabeans and they said, first of all, this is out of line with our history. And secondly, they actually started to acknowledge there was some corruption among the Maccabeans. And so there was this protest group that said, no, 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 you, you might have rebelled against that oppressive government, but there's still things that you're doing that are wrong. And so they knew something different had to happen. They knew that the morality in the culture was slipping. They knew that God wasn't moving, that God wasn't present in their midst the way that he used to be, and they had passion for things to go back. They wanted to experience the tangible presence of God again. And their matter of conviction was that the, the oppression that they were experiencing, the lack of God's tangible presence in their lives that, that they were missing, all of this was the result of a lack of obedience to what God had called them to as a people. So he said, you know what, we've got to change things. And so they rose up in rebellion to the Maccabeans, who were the rebellions against the government, uh, and, and they said, listen, we need to change the way that we're doing things. And they truly believed if they, just, they could bend God's will to, to blessing them again if they would have zeal for true, right religion. Like, let's just get things right. we got to make sure we're living biblically and honorably, and let's make sure we follow God's law, and let's not sway from the right or the left. Like, they had this passion for this. So let me just make sure you're really clear on this. This group of people, they are fighting against the corruption and moral decay of their culture, and they have this earnest desire to experience God's tangible presence in their midst. And their way of solving this was not to battle in, in some sort of physical confrontation, not to take up arms, and it wasn't to run off into the woods and disappear. It was literally to be in the midst of this culture and stay devoted to God. If we devote ourselves to God, God will liberate us. And this group has a name. 
As they rise up, um, they become known as the ones who are separate. That's the literal translation of their name, the separatists, the separate ones. Um, what's interesting is that our English translators, they transliterated the word. Rather than translating it the separate ones, they translated it as we know them today, and that is the Pharisees. Pharisees is simply a Greek word that means the separate ones. And when John talks about the Jewish leaders, he's talking about this group of people. The two phrases are synonymous. These are the separatists. The Pharisees began this journey of contending for God's presence and fighting against the moral decay of their culture, but they obsessed about keeping the laws for obvious reason, because they believed if we keep the law, then, then, then God will return to us. And so they tried to keep the law, and then they started building on other laws. Like, um, I remember when our, our kids were little, we had a, a wood stove in our house, and, um, and so you, you learn pretty quickly you don't want your children to touch the wood stove. They learn pretty quickly they don't want to touch the wood stove. So imagine this, the Jews said, there's a law that, that you shouldn't touch the wood stove, and that's actually a good law because it's in your best interest that you don't touch a hot wood stove. Everyone agree with that? But then this is what they did. They said, okay, there's a hot wood stove, so maybe we should put a fence up around the stove. Let's put a barrier around the stove, and that way nobody can get to the stove. And so don't ever cross the fence because we don't want you to touch the stove because that's bad for you. And then people said, well, you know what? That fence might not be enough. So let's make another rule that says you can't come within 10 feet of the fence that's keeping you from touching the stove. And so that became another rule and so on and so on and so on. They developed all of these rules because they were concerned that we might violate this thing. And so laws and rules and regulations and rights and rituals, they just start flowing out of this culture and volumes of books begin to be written that people are adding to the scriptures and saying, this is what you have to do in order to be obedient to God. They believe we have to do all of this in order to be accepted. We have to do all of this in order to be loved by God, which, by the way, that whole concept of us doing all of these things to be loved by God is exactly the definition of religiosity. I create a system where I jump through hoops in an attempt to appease God. So what does Jesus say about this? Matthew 24 another place in another biography of his life. Jesus is speaking about this group of people and he says, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So for example, you have the Sabbath and you can't carry anything of a certain size or a certain weight on the Sabbath. Otherwise, it might look like work, and if you work, you won't be blessed. Even if you just got healed after 38 years of laying by a pool. So Jesus' critique is really simple, isn't it? You're missing the point. You're missing me. You have substituted rules for reality. In fact, here's what's fascinating. If you look at the teaching of Jesus as a whole, all of his teaching, well over a third of the teaching of Jesus is directed at confronting the Pharisees, which means that Jesus isn't interested in, in rules and regulations or traditions or empty religion. What, what Jesus is, is interested in is addressing this lip service of religion. If you do this in an attempt to, to, to please me, you're missing the point in all of this. Listen to what he said in Matthew 15. He said, this, this people, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You worship me. You use my name 
in vain. This is, this is incredibly interesting. That using his name in vain is not connected to some sort of swear word. It's connected to lip service and religiosity. If you call me Lord, but you live by rules and regulations, you are using my name in vain. If you live religiously, jumping through hoops, that's my name in vain. It might look like change. People might say you have a different life because something's changed on the outside. But as long as nothing has changed on the inside, you have missed the point. Because Jesus is concerned about the heart. That's what he's concerned about. And I need to say this because I think this is going to set some of the people in this room free and even myself um, And some of you who are exploring faith in Jesus, I think this might answer some questions. Jesus wants hearts that are aligned with God, not not behavior that is aligned with someone's expectations. He wants a heart that's aligned with him. Are you with me on this? Okay, four or five of you, that's awesome. Thank you. Um, You know, this is a bit of an indictment. I'm just going to say this. I'm going to push some buttons for just a moment, but... This is interesting. In Christian circles, just like Jewish circles back then, we will accept people who behave a particular way even if their hearts aren't touched by the gospel. You're kind of doing the right stuff. That's what we really care about, is that your behavior is the right behavior. Jesus says, no, 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 I care about the heart. The behavior may be misaligned, but I care about the heart, which is why I believe Jesus performs this miracle in this place at this time because he's trying to get everybody to see. He, he's trying to take them up that mountain. You see it this way. You see it as this big thing. You're like, yeah, I know, I know Jesus, and I know what the church is all about. And Jesus is going, no, 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 you don't. There are two ways to live. You can live religiously. You can try to obey and appease this God that you think is angry. Or you can live in this freedom that comes through grace because you understand that Jesus has approached you and said, do you want to be healed? See, that, that's, that's the question here. All right, where do we stand in this story? Are we, are we laying by the pool, hoping for something else to fix us? Do we follow Jesus' commands or do we follow his, his person? Do we sit in judgment of other people? The question for us, Jesus approaches us and he says this, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? And the beauty of this story is that this man did nothing to receive his healing, did he? This man, this particular healing, Jesus just did it. And it is this bold statement of, this is who I am. I love you in your brokenness. I love you when you need to be healed. I love you when you're far from me. I love you when you don't get it. I'm going to lavish you with my love, and I'm going to invite you into something completely beautiful and new. That is the invitation. Jesus says there is a way that is real, that is full of life, where there is joy and peace and hope. And I'm it. Amen? Would you guys stand with me? I'm going to pray. I'm going to close and then I'm going to offer the benediction. So would you just join me in praying right now? Lord, would you open our eyes? Open our eyes to all the places and all the ways that we just miss you. And oftentimes our distance from you causes us to think we know you. And then we see stories like this one. And you are, you are uncomfortably wild at times. And Lord, I, I think you're inviting us to know you as that wild Messiah.
I think you are inviting us to know you as the one who will break rules to get to hearts. Lord, let us see you for who you are and let us experience your presence. Lord, I'm going to pray for us as a church this morning. Lord, let us be a church that experiences your presence not because we obeyed a bunch of rules, but because we pressed into the real and authentic relationship that you offer us. We want to know you and the life and the grace and the peace that comes through you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, one of the interesting things about the Pharisees is they believed that there was a Messiah to come. In fact, they were one of the groups contending and saying, no, there's going to be one that rescues us. And he was right there in front of them, and they completely missed it. So as I offer the benediction this morning, I just want to offer one that encourages us not to miss Jesus in the middle of all of this mess. Amen? May your eyes be opened, and may you see Jesus for who he really is. May you be liberated from rites and rituals and religiosity. May you enter into a relationship of love and grace and peace. And may fresh winds of God's presence blow through the canyons of your soul. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.